So one of the most frequent questions I get as a pastor is, so yeah, you know, it just kind of comes up. Like people just ask me this like flippantly without any context. Oh, so you're a pastor. Do you believe in predestination? It's like, wow, okay. That escalated quickly. That really got out of hand fast. So, you know, and sometimes they'll say it this way, you know, especially if the person's more, I guess, like intellectual or philosophically minded, whatever. And they say, oh, so do you believe in free will or predestination? Like as if these two are like enemies and I have to pick one, just select one, you know. This is how the author Neil Stevenson, he's a, he's a writer, he put it this way. He says, this is one of the two greatest labyrinths into which a human mind are drawn in the question of free will versus so it's a match. It's like a cage fight or something versus predestination. They're, they're enemies. They're fighting here, right? And not everybody agrees with, with uh, Stevenson on this. Winston Churchill, who I think some of you might know if you listened to, in school at history class, right? Uh, he believed that uh, predestination and free will were compatible, that they were f- great friends. They were the same thing in many ways. He says, my conclusion on free will and predestination is that they are identical, so he says, like, we describe like a butterfly, two different sides, two different like radical colors in a butterfly. Though they look opposite or they look contrastive, they are the same thing is what he was thinking. And it's one of those questions that, quite frankly, uh, interests people, confuse people. And if I'm being honest, makes people really, really angry. Makes people really mad. In preparing for this text, I was up in Zion. I was looking at, um, it shows you even on my vacations, I'm looking at stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, I was up in Zion and uh, I noticed, uh, you know, uh, on the YouTube, like that, on the YouTube, like I'm not, the YouTube, on YouTube, that there was a lot of videos on this subject and that they had a considerable, like, amount of hits, like, like you know, like, you know, if you type in, like, you know, does God love me or whatever, you get a few hits, but you type in predestination, it's like 100K. Everybody wants to know about this. This is a spicy topic. And I like spicy food, so here we are, you know. So, and so my wife's like, yeah, the reason why they get so many views is because that topic really bothers people. It makes people upset. It's a nagging question that gets you all, you know, emotional. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, he really hated predestination. He had this kind of visceral, intense reaction to it. He says, the ugly and alien logic of predestination. What is eye-opening is that in the most recent Ligonier surveys, the state of theology, which is they had in 2020, so that's two years ago, only 33% of evangelical Christians believed in the doctrine of predestination. Now, in terms of the population, unbelievers and so on, 27% believe in the doctrine. It's just U.S. Americans, 27% believe in the doctrine of predestination. That's kind of interesting how that works out, but that's what people surveyed. And I, and I, I think one of the reasons why I am asked as a pastor is by many Christians, like, you know, you know, do I believe in it? They don't, they may not read the section of, the, of scripture that says this, but the Bible says, uses the word predestination. It actually uses the word and people don't like to talk or acknowledge that, but, you know, going verse by verse, we're, we're, we're forced to look at this text here and to analyze it and to apply it to our lives. And so we're looking at Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30, and it is mentioned in these verses, two verses directly, predestination, the word. 
And I just want to be upfront, like I did my due diligence, I studied the backgrounds of this, and I studied where contemporary New Testament scholarship is at. And what I'll be offering as we look at the text and we're trying to understand what it means, I'll be offering to you the view that is agreed upon by the vast, vast, vast majority of New Testament scholars. I'm not offering or looking at this text and coming up with some strange sectarian interpretation that I came you know, up with last night at 3 a.m. looking at a lava lamp. Like my theories, you know, I'm not going, I'm not giving some weird or bizarre esoteric view of the text that I just derived from a bunch of YouTubers, you know, like they're just like, hey, I'm Joe, what's up? I'm 19 and here's my view of Romans 8. No, this is, this is what we're looking at here. What, what contemporary scholars who know the Greek, what they have viewed this text as, that's what I'll be looking at. And as, as your pastor, I'm committed to teaching and following the text wherever it takes us, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how unpopular it is. We are not a church that, you know, tries to just be popular for the sake of being popular. We want to look at what the Bible says, whether it makes us, you know, makes us feel good in the moment or not. That's to look at the objective word of God as truth. And that truth, if we understand it in its context, will bless us, I believe. And I do have some good news. I've had a lot of caveats. It sounds a little doomish and gloomish, but I have some good news. If you understand the doctrine of predestination, it's something that will not make you, in fact, angry, but will something, if you reflect it on your own personal experience knowing Christ, it's something that gives you great comfort and security in your relationship with Jesus. And so that's why this is important to look at as we look at Romans 8.28. We read this, I mean, we've been on a, quite a hiatus, right? I, w- I went to Louisiana, gone for two, three weeks, and then um, we had uh, two side series going on. So we're now getting back. So I'm going to give you Romans 8.28 for the context here. And we know that for those who, got, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So it's God's purpose. Being a part of his purpose is trusting in Christ. And then God works out all things, even the difficult things, the things we don't understand. There are things that happen in our life that we're like, why is this going on? This is incredibly hard for me. I'm struggling through processing this, but God says even those things for believers, they will work out for a final and ultimate good. God is in control. He's not like, you know, hands off. He is in control. Look at verse 29. And so it's a continuation of the thought because you see four there. It's, it's continuing the thought of 28. For those whom he foreknew, this is a part of how he works out all things for good. He's in control. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's, it's here. That word that elicits such an emotional reaction is here in the text. Predestined is used. Predestination is, is mentioned here. And the Greek word, if you want to know, like, well, what does this word mean? It's a Greek word, perizo, and it simply means to predestine or predetermine. Uh, the, this is according to all the lexicons that you can look up and the top ones you can look up. The Freiburg lexicon gives a more precise meaning of perizo that means decided on beforehand to determine in advance. Thayer's lexicon gives a meaning of perizo to de- predetermine to decide beforehand. Gingrich says, to decide upon beforehand, predestined. I, I think you guys get the point. It, it looks, I mean, the word is translated in English properly. It is what the Greek word means. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. We know what it means. We can translate it. There's no mystery there. So, there's no controversy over what this word predestined means. It's, it's to decide, it's to determine something ahead of time, before time. That's simply what the word means. 
And uh, you might say, well, that's just this one verse in the Bible. It's just like deleted. Let's skip over that. You know, let's not talk about that verse. Problem is, it's mentioned repeatedly in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 1.5, it says, He predestined us for an adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, Ephesians 1.11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, not some things, all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. So the Greek, you can see this Greek word parizo is used repeatedly, the same Greek word throughout, used repeatedly throughout the New Testament. Therefore, if we... As Christians, if we're striving to be faithful to God's word, if we're striving to be biblical, we are committed in some sense to hold the doctrine of predestination. Many Christians have held this throughout history. It's not something that was just invented in the 15th century. This has been a Christian belief for, for some time. Now, when some people do, when they come to this passage, they kind of say, okay, well, I, okay, here we go. I've got a way to get around this, Nate. I've got a way to try to sneak out of this scary word. And so what I'm going to say is, so it says for no here. So what this is really saying is that God looks into the future, sees who's going to believe in Jesus, and he just predestines those people. There it is, A to Z, it's, it's all solved. And they, you read the verse, it says, for those whom he foreknew, see, God's looking in the future. He's checking out what people are doing. They're going to see in there whether they're going to believe or not, you know. And he sees, okay, they're going to believe in me. I'm going to predestine that guy. He believed in me. There we go. And so it says, so, so those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I mean, I can, I can see how a reasonable person could draw that conclusion. If you look at just look at foreknows, I mean, you think of looking into the future. That's what I think. But the issue is, is that's not what the Greek word foreknown means, according to scholars, according to just if you look through the Bible, known in Gnosko, the Hebrew word yada, it's used in Genesis for, for Abraham was chosen among all the other nations. Uh, that's the Hebrew word yada. And then Gnosko is, is used um, for, in, you, you see this with Adam and Eve, God having intimate, or God, Adam having intimate knowledge of, of Eve. He said he, you know, he knew his wife and they conceived children. It refers to relationship, intimate knowledge. It refers to love for choosing. All of these things are kind of packed into this word here. He says in Matthew 7, you know, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Not, I knew you once, I never knew you. So it doesn't mean like I knew, you know, God's like ignorant of certain things, like he's not, no, God knows everything. That means he's never forechosen him. He never had a, a, a intimate relationship with him. I never knew you. Eternal life in John 17 is described as knowing God in Christ. Knowing, it's not just like a knowledge of fact, it's a loving relationship that is established. You see this use of foreknown in Romans 11, 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2, and I'm going to skip down this poor slide people back there. So Romans 11, 1, it says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he for." New. Just go down to verse 5. So that at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So it's not just intellectual. Like he knows the Israelites intellectually. No, there's this relationship. There's this love relationship going on here. 
And so when he says that, I've not rejected the people who I foreknow, it doesn't mean just intellectual knowledge. I've not rejected the people who I've bestowed my love and grace upon. And so this is a meaning of foreknow. And this is just not like my theorizing or my opinions. This is the opinion of, of majority of scholars because of the Old Testament background, because of how, what these Greek words mean. This is what prominent New Testament scholar James Dunn puts it this way. For those he knew beforehand, he also predestined. God knew his own before they ever were. Proskonoso obviously means more than simple foreknowledge, knowledge before an event. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It is, has a view of the Hebraic understanding of knowing as involving a relationship experienced and acknowledged. See that? Hence, commentators regularly, this is what they regularly do, this is the consensus, rightly refer to such passages as Genesis 18, 19. God has chosen Abraham from all the other nations among the earth. That word is, is foreknown there. Whose influence is elsewhere, Paul's correspondence and his evidence is evident. So, yeah, and this is what Leon Morris says. He says, another scholar, many scholars feel that we cannot take the verb in the place to refer to no more than knowledge. They point out that the Old Testament equivalent means something like chosen and advanced. Moreover, Paul is describing the saved and God's foreknowledge of them is not the same foreknowledge of all mankind. Perhaps chosen beforehand is as good as we can do viewing the reference here to election. That is where scholarship is at right now. So this, what, this, what this Greek word is meaning then is foreloved or you could translate as chosen beforehand. And you might... That might freak you out. That might not make you feel good. But um, what I, what I th think is very beautiful about this is that God does not have conditional love for us. He loves us for us. It's not based on something we have done. He loved us before we existed. He loved us for us. Not based on good works. Not based on our achievements. Not based on the, the mightiness of our faith. None of those things, you know, I mean, you think about it like, you know, <laughs> You, you uh, compliment your wife, say, I'm very beautiful. They might say, like, well, what if I get in a car accident and get burned really badly, you know? And they're like, are you still going to love me? It's like, well, yeah, I am because I don't love you for what you can offer me. I love you for you. It's not, it's not a kind of a consumerist form of love that's, that's being talked about here. It's God loving you for you. Not because you're X, Y, and Z. Not because you can do this. And so God loves us like we love, I mean, like I love my children, you know, my, my children, you know, I don't say, well, the reason why I love Kenny and Abigail is because they do this, this, and this. I mean, goodness, they, they barely pull their weight. <laughs> you know, I love them for them. Be, not what they offer me, like some sort of consumer corporate thing. Oh, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this. You're cut off. No, no. God loves us unconditionally. He loves us for us. Those who trust in Christ, he loves you for you. Not what you can offer, not what you can do, achieve, or believe. He loves you for you. I, I understand people struggle with this. So well, how do I know? That I'm predestined, eh? You know, and people believe that, you know, I, I had a history teacher say this. It was really bizarre. I mean... You know, it was at a secular college at the time, so, you know, that's how it goes. But she's like, yeah, people believe in predestination. Like, you can believe and do all these things all your life. And no matter if God, you know, didn't predestine you, then you're in trouble. You're in big, big trouble. Uh, it's like, well, no, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Christ, that's how you know you're predestined. If you believe in Jesus right now, you have been predestined. God is working things out in your life right now. 
So it's not like, oh, well, who knows if I'm, I'm predestined because I believe in Jesus. And that's not just my opinion. This is what Romans 8, 29 through 30 goes on to say, that those who he predestined, he called and justified. And Paul's whole point throughout the entire book of Romans is how are we justified? We are justified by faith. So it's not like no one knows, slip a coin, good luck, let's fingers crossed. No, it's a great comfort to those who trust in, in Christ. This is what it says in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those who are predestined, I mean, there's a change in their life. They trust in Jesus. God works in them. And justified here means declared righteous. So you trust in Jesus by faith. This morning, you're declared righteous. All your sins are forgiven. And you have been a part of this loving plan that God has designed for you. And so it's by faith and grace alone. Some people like have this idea, well, you know, okay, if it's just predestination, then no matter what I do, it's just going to end up a certain way. But the thing is, that's a misunderstanding. God plans the ends as well as a means. I've heard some people say, you know, well, if you believe in predestination, that means you can study really, really, really hard for a test. You can study all night. But if you're predestined to get an F, you're going to get an F. That's not predestination, though. That's called fatalism. Fatalism is a view that human beings do not have free will. And fatalism holds that no matter what you do or how hard you work, if something is going to happen, it's going to happen. But you see, God, how he does things is different. He sets up the means as well as he ends. He sets it up that if you are going to get an A, that means he's also planned it out, that you're also going to try, work hard, and study all night so that you get that A. It's not like, you know, the, the means and the ends or what you do and what it accomplishes. It's not like they're, they're, they're disconnected. Like, you know, I could, I could be working for something for a long period of time, you know, trying to diet or go on a marathon, and no matter what, I'm not going to be able to do it. No, God, if he says, okay, you're going to run this marathon, he's going to provide the means as well as the ends. He's going to provide you striving for that marathon as well, uh, as, as well as actually running the marathon. It's not all disconnected. They are connected. And the Bible teaches human beings are responsible. They're free. The Bible does not teach we're like, you know, beep, 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 beep. we're like robots, you know, we're like we're puppets, you know, like I have no control or something like that. So here's my point. I would want to say that if you look at the scripture, you know, I mean, John 3, 16, you got to believe in, in Jesus, that we have, we have free will and we have moral responsibility. And I believe the Bible teaches also predestination. The Bible teaches you make a choice when you believe in Jesus. It's not like when I became a Christian and believed in Jesus, I was like, beep, 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 I'm a robot, you know, like a puppet, you know, being like a mar- No, that's not how it works. The Bible teaches that free will... And moral responsibility and predestination are compatible. They're not incompatible. And in in philosophy, this this, this, this theory is called compatibilism. And what most people don't know know is they just think, okay, well, it's got to be the predestination or free will, like we have to choose one. And so you, you read, you read a, a passage about, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So, oh, well, I can believe in Jesus, and it's, I'm not a robot, so I guess there's no predestination. No, that's not what the Bible, the Bible teaches both of these things. As Spurgeon would say about free will and predestination, I never try to reconcile friends. They're friends, they're not even frenemies, they're just straight up friends, okay? So look at how the Bible, this is not like, the Bible teaches that 
they're compatible because the Bible teaches that people do certain things, wicked or good things, and that God has a plan for all of that. That these two are not incompatible. This is what it says in Acts 4.26-28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were both gathered together, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Same Greek word there for predestined. Again, in Acts 2.23, the similar, the same situation. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. God has a definite plan. It's not like he's like, oh, I'm kind of making it up on the fly. I'm a wild and crazy guy. No, he has a definitive plan. And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice this is Jesus being tortured, crucified, and murdered by evil men. Yet it was a part of God's plan. It was a predetermined event. That's what this that's what this says. These men, when they were acted wickedly and hurting and murdering Jesus, they were not robots. They were not puppets. No one calls a robot or a puppet wicked. They're not free. It doesn't make any sense. But you see, Luke calls the men who murdered Jesus wicked, even though it was a part of God's plan. It was set up that way. So the Bible teaches that this is not, they're not enemies. This goes hand in hand. And, you know, if you think that is so crazy... How could anybody ever believe that? Well, it's interesting to note, I studied this subject in graduate school, free will and determinism and free will and, and uh, how indeterminism affects it. We, I looked into the subject a lot when I got my uh, MA in philosophy at Talibut, but I studied this and most philosophers today who study this say that predetermination is compatible, predestination is compatible with free will. The vast majority of them say that. So, I mean, I don't think there's a huge problem here when people think this is just obviously absurd. When people who have devoted their life to studying this subject say, yeah, if you look at this carefully, I don't think there's a problem here. Now you say, well, how could they come to this conclusion? You know, like, I mean, are we just to trust your opinion? Like, how do they derive this? How do they know this? Well, there are many examples where, you know, people often think of the reason why they think you know, predestination is incompatible with free will is they think that you have to go down two pathways, right? Adam has to eat the apple or not eat the apple, or you can either, you know, marry somebody or not marry somebody. You have to have two pathways available for you. And this is kind of heavy. We're going to, we're just going to look at this briefly. You have to have two pathways available to you, a garden of forking paths, as it were, in order for you to be, to be free, problem is there's many examples against against this so um let me give you a popular one that i conjured up with the youth group one time so imagine you are imagine i put one of the kids one of the young guys in the game room right and in that room i give him you know pizza carne asada fries the best games imaginable i say you know i'll, I'll lock one of the youth kids in there and say yeah well you know just stay in this room you can leave if you want you but i lock the door he doesn't know about it i lock that door and uh so i have him in this room with the best video games Best, 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 you know, teenagers that eat so much, pizza and carne asada fries and everything. It's a, it's a teenage, teenage boy's heaven in that room, right? The game room downstairs, right? So you just have all these goodies in there and you say, okay, well, I'll, I'll be right back. You can leave if you want and go to other places in the church, but I'm going to be back in an hour. I'll check on you, right? And so I go back and that kid is still right there sitting playing video games, munching away, right? He never even thought about leaving the room. He just wanted to stay in that room and, you know, veg out for an hour and play Smash Brothers, whatever game they're playing and eating food. So 
you know, he didn't, he, that door was locked shut. He couldn't leave. He was locked in that room. But he wanted, he wanted to stay in there. He had one pathway, but he chose to stay in there. He wanted to stay in there and veg out on, uh, on, on carne asada fries. If I were locking up this church at the end of service, sometimes I do that. Sometimes Johnny does. It just depends on who's locking up. Josh does it sometimes too. You know, I'm locking up at church and some guy comes out with like a hood. He's like, hey, pastor, you want some heroin? Be like, like for, I have no desire to do heroin, I, just in case you wanted to know. Um, I have no desire to do heroin. Like, it's never been like, you know, heroin's a great idea. Then we'll go into horse tranquilizers. Never really crossed my mind, right? So every time that dude in the, like, you know, the hood, he's going to be like, hey, Pastor, you want some heroin? You were to, if you were to roll back the clock a million times, every single time I'm being, no, 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 no heroin, no heroin. Like, I, I, you know, I want to not take heroin really bad, you know? If you get anything from this message... <laughs> Hopefully it's that. So what'd you learn today at church? Well, Pastor Nate's not really interested in heroin. It's like, terrific, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So, and, you know, I'm sure many uh, men seeing their, their wives coming down the aisle, they were going to say, I do. They're going to say, I do every single time. They couldn't do any differently. And they wanted to do it, and they couldn't do any differently. And if you deny that, you might be sleeping on the couch tonight. So there's that. And you think about a biblical example. Satan, right? And Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is God. He's the perfect son of God. He could not sin. And yet Satan tempted him a million ways in the wilderness. He could never give in to that sin. No, there's no possible way Jesus could give in to the sin of Satan. He's like, hey, here's some bread. You know, you know t- turn these stones into bread and everything. There's no way Jesus could give in to that temptation. Jesus is perfect, Right? So just because Jesus wanted to do it and he had no alternative pathways, he was only going to do the right thing because it's Jesus. Jesus is always perfect. He can't be anything but perfect. Doesn't make Jesus into a robot or a puppet. But he has one pathway. He freely goes down it. Book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 6, it says it's impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. It's impossible. Jesus is God. He, couldn't, he could only ever tell the truth. He could never lie. But he wanted to. He was not a robot. He was not a puppet. He was not an automaton. None of those. And so, you, I mean, think about this. When we get to heaven, we will freely do righteousness. We can't sin in heaven. We're, we have our perfect resurrection bodies. We're, there's no more sin, no more pain, no more shame in heaven. But we want to do only good. We freely choose to do good. We're not robots in heaven. And so here's my point. These examples can be multiplied. There's like tons of them in the literature. Examples of where you can only go down one pathway and you want to do it. You're not coerced, but you only have one pathway to go down and you freely go down that pathway. So God has a plan for our lives, a pathway, if you will. He sets it up and we freely choose to walk down that pathway. We're not like, well, I can't, I can't do what I want. No, it's not how it works. So this is, in my mind, how predestination and free will would work out. Now, if you don't like anything I said and you said, Nate, this is so boring and intellectual, I could care less. Well, that's okay because you don't have to work it out. You could just say, I believe in free will and I believe in predestination. I am finite. God's infinite. So maybe I just don't know and who cares? And if you're in that position, great. My only point is, is that if you believe this and you believe you can work it out and say they're compatible, they're not incompatible, uh, from our finite limited perspective, it's not intellectual suicide. Now, P. 
people get really worried about evil and people not going to heaven and how this all relates. And what I would want to say is that God does not directly cause evil. He's not the author of evil. God allows people to be evil in his plan and to reject him. He does not predetermine people to hell like he predetermines people to heaven. God doesn't have to do that because people have already chosen of their own free will and volition to reject him. That's what they want to do. They're doing what they want to do. So when people go to hell, they go to hell by their own choice. And in light of the fact that God's offering his kindness, love, mercy, and grace, God does not force people into hell. That's not how it works. They want to be there. They choose to be there. And so God has a plan and a good reason for anything, even even allowing the difficult things like people going to hell, all those sort of difficult things. God has a reason for it all, for allowing that. We may not know that reason, and we would expect that because we don't have access to an infinite mind. We're finite. I mean, we can barely understand each other. Kids can barely understand parents. Parents can barely understand kids. It's tough. Life's hard. We can barely understand each other. How much more when you throw an infinite being into that mix? There's no way you're going to know. And so you look at the worst event in human history where there was a a person who was perfect and, and was wrongly punished, and that was Jesus. And that event was planned, and that event worked out for a greater good. And so if God can work that most heinous event of Jesus being betrayed, even though he was innocent and perfect and worked it out for our salvation, I think he can work other things out for a greater good. And I trust in his will and his plan that he, that he does. Now, I've gone through all of this, and I know a lot of people struggle, and I have a pastor's heart. I don't want people struggling. I, that makes me sad to think about people struggling intellectually or emotionally with this. But I I don't want us to miss the point of the text here, which is supposed to be a profound emotional comfort to us as believers. The whole point of this text is not to draw out philosophical talking points. The whole point of this text is to show that we are in the loving, caring hands of God in our lives. Romans 8.30 says this very well. Pay attention to how it's worded as we look at this carefully. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Called here means the moment God brings you to himself with the gospel, according to the vast majority of scholars there. And you can see how that works out because those who are called are also predestined. So the calling works at bringing those people to be saved here. Justified refers to that point, as I mentioned before, but is when by faith you trust in Jesus and you're declared righteous and all your sins are forgiven. Glorified here refers to when Jesus comes back and we have our new glorified resurrection bodies at the end of time in history. But I want you to know something, I mean, here is that justified and called, they're using the heiress, they're using the past tense here. But notice that glorified is also used in the past tense. Glorified. Justified, glorified. It's past tense. And that's kind of weird. Because if you look around, there's still suffering and sin. Jesus has not come back yet. So why is glorified being used in the past tense? And this is what the Greek does all the time. It uses this for, for prophecy. If you read Isaiah 53, for instance, it uses the past tense to describe Jesus' suffering because those events are so certain because they're a part of God's plan. The past tense is used to denote in Greek absolute, complete, and utter certainty. This is something that is so certain. It's, it might as well be as 
accomplished. If people say it's as good as done. And this is how the aorist tense, which is how this is used in Greek here, the aorist, the past tense is used here. It's, it's saying that if you trust in Jesus right now, and if you were to die tonight, you would not go to hell. You, you will be saved. It is a certain, you, are, you might as well as have your resurrection body right now. That's how certain this is. That's how certain all your sins are forgiven, that you are declared righteous. And so if you believe in Christ and you are justified, and it, you're, you're as good as in heaven already. That's how secure the believer is. If you were to die right now, heaven is guaranteed for you. Because according to Paul, if you are justified, then you are glorified. If you trust in Christ, then you are it will happen automatically. There are no butts and breaks in this golden chain of redemption. It will happen. Now, the question that people understandably have is why is this chain of redemption, this golden chain of salvation, why is it so certain? How can it be so certain? I mean, we live day to day and it feels like we're in fluctuation. You know, some days I have good days, some days I have bad days, you know. So how can it be so certain that if, that if I were to die, I would definitely get my resurrection body and be in the presence of Jesus? And the reason why it is so certain is if you look at the text carefully, it's amazing. Who's the actor here? Is it us? Is it us justifying? Is it us glorifying? Is it us calling ourselves? The actor, and you can see this in the Greek, and you see it in the English, it's playing this day. The actor in these verses is God. He is the one actively justifying us. He is the one glorifying us. He is the actor. He is the one who predestines. He is the one who calls, justifies, and glorifies. Salvation belongs to the Lord God. And because God is the actor in salvation, we can have assurance right now that we're going to go to heaven. God never fails to accomplish what he, what he sets out, what he wants to accomplish. We are as good as glorified. That's why the past tense is used here. Me, on the other hand, if I set out something, man, I'm going to fail a lot. I have failed so many times at things I've tried to accomplish. I sin every day, every single day. You see, if this whole thing... This whole salvation, if this thing's riding on me, we are so much in trouble. Big, big trouble. Big, big trouble. We cannot keep it together for like an hour. Like we can't, I mean, we sin every hour, every day easily. And really, if you're being honest, maybe even 10 minutes, we can go lower than that too. So yeah, if it were based on me, then I could have no certainty of where I'm going to go when I die. Because this is the truth, is if I'm trying to earn my salvation, my salvation depends on me. Then that just, I mean, there's something wrong. It's probably the Irish blood, you know, in me, you know, devious and whatnot. If I think I'm trying to earn something that works, I'm just going to fall apart and just like go in the opposite direction. I'm a rebellious person. That's how I am naturally. So I'm just going to have self-destructive thoughts. If I think it's riding on me that I, I can't, I'll buckle under that pressure. I can't take the anxiety of it. I fall apart. But when I know this whole thing is riding on God and he's already done it for me, he's accomplished it and, and it's as good as done, that allows me to relax, take a chill pill and enjoy God for who he is. He is the one saving me, so I don't have to be anxious and uptight and worried and worried, you know, concerned. He is the actor in salvation, not me. And you see, this is what makes Christianity different than all other world religions, because let's face it, Christianity is probably very is the only unique one that believes in predestination and that God is the actor, because the function is that God is the one who does it. We are secure because of Jesus, not because of us. 
all other religions say that you have to work hard. You have to strive. So you're insecure and you have a life filled with fear, exhaustion, and anxiety, like you're never measuring up and you just feel awful. But it is only biblical Christianity that can bring true rest and healing to our souls because we don't have to exhaust ourselves with trying to be worthy and good enough and you know, just exasperate ourselves. We don't have to keep ourselves in to be saved. There's somebody who already died for that. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he has set you in his heart for all eternity. He loves you. And if you trust in him this morning, then not only is heaven as good as done and certain for you, but you will have rest, joy, and peace in this life. Let us pray and give him glory.